listening to Detroit Today. I'm Laura Weber Davis. Jessica Caremore is a poet from Detroit who years ago caught the attention of an elite circle of artists with roots in Brooklyn. She now counts among her friends and compatriots, rappers Talib Kweli and Yasin Bey, formerly known as Most Def, as well as poet Saul Williams. She made local headlines this year winning a Night Arts Challenge grant and also as the voice of a viral video pitching the city of Detroit for the new Amazon headquarters. Detroiters are born moving. Our wings have a deep history. Our roads pave the way for every future highway of tomorrow. An international hub full of vitality, of Michigan strength, from the global reach of techno and Motown to the powerful rev of our engines. From style trends to technology, Detroit is the starting line of the world's imagination. Jessica Caremore, welcome to Detroit Today. Hi, thank you for having me, Laura. (laughs) So uh, one of the main reasons we wanted to have you come in to talk about your 2017 or what the year has been like for you um, is because you made this sort of fourth quarter splash on the national stage with Mm. this beautiful poem about Detroit uh, over the Amazon headquarters bid. Um, So tell me a little bit about the process of... Uh, being asked to do that yep. and then deciding what you wanted to say. I'm sure that they had some things they wanted, some themes they wanted you to work in. Maybe they didn't have any constraints, but just tell me about the artistic process of wow. and the business proce- uh, process of being hired for that job. That's interesting. So, yeah, let's just start there. Um, you know, it's funny because you do so many things as an artist, you kind of just forget. So even when you were saying it, I was like, oh, that, because <laughs> I've done like a couple other things <laughs> since then. So I'm like, yeah, um, move here, move the world, right? Right. And um, so Stephen McGee, you you know, shout out to my dear friend, filmmaker Stephen McGee, who we've done about three or four projects together. So it's not um, it wasn't a new relationship. He's a he's a friend of mine, him and his wife and his beautiful children. Um, I got to meet them before they were together and I've known them along the journey of them building this beautiful family. And so it was just an artist asking an artist, can you do something? Mm-hmm. And um, Stephen knows I write about Detroit. That's not new for me in right. all of my writing since my first book. I've always referenced this city that uh, really shaped me as a writer and a poet in person. And so Stephen was, um, I don't know, I think he just called me and said, hey, what you got up this week? And I was like, I'm doing this thing at the DIA with John Bunkley you know, whatever, with WSU Galleries. Come, he's like, can I come through and shoot it? And I was like, yeah, come shoot it. So the, it it started like that. Mm. And so he just came through, he shot. So, so in the video, you'll see me with a polka dot dress with John Bunkley, who's the lead singer from Atomic Fireballs from mm-hmm. back in the day. I'm a gangster fun, a really amazing musician. And we're just kind of walking out the elevator of the DIA. And he's just following us, and he shot some of the some of the show. And I didn't know what he was doing. I didn't care. He's like, he's my boy. He's shooting some stuff. <laughs> like, whatever you do, Steven, all good. What's mm-hmm. up? And he, then he was like, well, yeah, there's this thing I'm working on. I think it's going to be a big deal. You know, I might need you to write um, some script for me. And so that's something we've done. And so I was like, okay, yeah, so what's the thing? You know, it's all about Detroit and how Detroit is on the cutting edge and how we're moving things. And I was like, okay, yeah, I got poems about that already, but what you need? And, <laughs> and so I... I um, he told me what he needed. Um, I was in the middle of a lot. I was traveling to the Reform Conference at Drug Policy Alliance. I was doing a poetry performance there. And so I was on the road. Um, I said, okay, I'll work on a draft. And then he gave me kind of a script of what some people might have done, like who actually like marketing people. And it was just really dry. And I was like, oh, no. So I, I got this. And so I, I wrote the poem. And um and said, here you go. And then I didn't know who Stephen was sending it to, to be honest. Uh, at that point, hmm. there was no Amazon, nothing. There was nothing about that. It was just really just me creating something about Detroit 
with Steven, who's like an amazing, has an amazing eye for film, who I knew it's going to be fresh. So <laughs> me and Steven are doing it. It's going to turn out good. So I wrote it in Atlanta, sent the draft back. He sent it to um, now the marketing person at Bedrock, who I had no idea um, was involved. And then they loved it and went crazy over it and had notes, but was like, this is it. And so I was like, okay, great. So I came home to Detroit um, a couple of days later. I thought it was going to be, you know, when, when he finally told me, he was like, well, this is like, you know, a pitch for Amazon because Amazon's trying to come here, headquarters somewhere in the country. And I'm like, oh, I paid no attention to that, right? <laughs> and so I was like, okay, that sounds cool. So even with that, I still thought it was going to be uh, maybe a corporate kind of meeting and that they were going to show the video in a meeting. Oh, sure. Or a pitch. Yeah. Not Madonna's going to share it. <laughs> I was like, what? And I was like, what are you talking about? So then it became like this thing. Then it's on the website. And then I'm in Nevada and I'm talking to Steve like, yo, what is really going on right now? And so it didn't really hit me. And then, you know, a couple of my friends in the news media call, like, can you come in the studio? And I'm like, I'm in Nevada. And so, no, I can't come. Um, so it didn't really hit me until after I did it. But it's something I do so naturally. And it's because, you know, I, people ask me different questions. I didn't. Dan Gilbert and I have Gilbert and I have met on several different occasions just yeah. because I do stuff in Detroit. So it's hard to not know me if you're doing stuff in Detroit. Right. right? And so, um, you know, he I was I'm on the executive board of the NAACP and so he was one of our funders for the dinner. And so I met him. That's where I actually met him through the NAACP at first, hmm. um, which was an interesting place. And so he was cool, whatever. You know what I mean? It's like everyone has issues with him. Right. Uh, <laughs> everybody has issues with anybody that's coming into a city and building big old buildings and stuff, right? You're always just worried about what's going to happen to the little person. And so what I love about Stephen McGee, because this is really about our relationship, you know what I mean, not my relationship with any corporate entity, is that he knew to call me. And I'm a black woman and unapologetically black, and he knows that too, and he knows I'm all about Detroit, and I'm not all about just new Detroit. I'm all about old Detroit and the Detroit that raised me, right? Right. And he has that understanding, and he was like, yeah, that's why you have to do it. Yeah, it seems like you were um, a really wise pick uh, yeah. for Bedrock, but Thank also you. just for this message in general to get out to the to the nation about but, what, what we are about. And I think what, something that struck me in listening to your poetry... Just to be clear, though, Bedrock didn't pick me. Oh, Stephen did. Stephen did. Well, Stephen doesn't work with Bedrock. They're smart to pick with Stephen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. Stephen's an independent person too. You know, right. That, that doesn't work for Bedrock either. And so that's what I think. That's why it worked. Right. Is because it wasn't like this insider kind of thing. It was like let's pick a, a real artist <laughs> that really loves the city to talk about Detroit. And that's why I think people all over the country who tweeted me and inboxed me who I didn't know loved it and why they connected with it in a human way. Is right. You may gave me chills. I'm in Seattle. Oh, my God. I miss home now, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. Well, so tell me about your artistic process in putting something together that has to have kind of a carefully craft, crafted message. It seems yeah. to me like if you're writing a poem for Detroiters, you're going to be able to say different things or convey a different message because they yeah. already under, there's an understanding there already. Yeah, um and and yes, you may have some of the same themes, but you really you're speaking to a national audience, so you have to say something about you're representing yes. the city, right, yes. to the world. And it's not necessarily what you think it is, and maybe sometimes it is what you think it is, but in a different way. So when you're writing a poem like this that you know is going to be received by uh, an audience outside of Detroit or intended for that audience, what kind of things are going through your mind as you're sort of telling Detroit's story? I mean, it's to be authentic. You know, like, that's what I'm always attempting to do is to be tell the authentic story of Detroit. Detroit is such an authentic city with a lot of grit. And it raised me. I went to Detroit Public School. Shout out to Cody High School. You know, <laughs> so those things are running through my veins. Right. And um, 
And so I think it's just about not changing just because who asked, mm-hmm. right? Um, I, right after that, I, you know, I had been commissioned already to do Any Ideas, which mm-hmm. was a big commission for me. So, so when you're, I mean, to be honest, like, it's very hard. I'm not inspired by money. <laughs> I'm not inspired by commissions. Um, I have to be inspired by the story. And so just because, you know, people think, oh, that's a good business thing. I'm like, it just never moved me. I've turned down lots of money um, mm-hmm. because... Or I can't even write it. I mean, just because someone puts you, gives you a check doesn't mean, oh, now I can write. It just doesn't, inspiration doesn't happen that way. So my process is very personal. Um, the Some of the lines, I mean, are very, like, general when it comes to blue-collar working-class people. I think that's why it hits the mark, even on a national level, is because working-class Midwestern cities get it. Um, right. People who come from union families get it. So... I think I keep that in mind, but it's easy for me to to write that because that's how I was raised. You know, my father, Tom's trucking, you know, laid cement and had a construction company, and I watched him do that his whole life. He wore a hard hat every day. If he wasn't in a, a, a suit to go out to party, he was in a in a hard hat and boots. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I know. My mother worked for Michigan Bell right on Michigan Avenue, so just working-class folks, you know, trying to raise children and put, give them a good education and get, hope they turn out okay, you know. Yeah. Um, so I think that's it. Like the sensibilities, like don't overthink it. I don't think about who the corporate person is. I think about what it, what is the job that I have to do here and um, and to be as honest as possible and not try to not be who I am. Mm-hmm. And that's something like, you know, you, I, you know, the corporate, I'm blessed for the commissions, um, but it's not the most exciting thing. Sure. Like, it's not. I like to write what I feel like writing. You know, like if yeah. you and I leave here and I get inspired by a conversation in the hallway, then I want to write that. No one's given me any money to do that. That's why <laughs> no one gave me money to write my books. But um, that's why the poems are good because no right. one's like saying, "Here's the money for it." But and that's what's deep. It's like you know because I wasn't even thinking about money with Stephen because it was just a creative thing. Well, yeah, I'll do it if there's money. Cool. If there's you know not there's some there's always some money you know somewhere. And so you know him and I as friends had to sit there and figure out like what to ask for. You know it was like right. a funny conversation and. Um, and so, of course, I was paid, you know, after the fact, though. I didn't even invoice until, like, later, you know, because I just wanted to get it done. It's like it's really, like, when I tell young people, you know, rich is your relationships, it's really about, like, who you can call. Right. And um, because it was Stephen, it was kind of just an easy, organic thing for it to happen. If someone else, if I didn't know him, I would have probably been more standoffish. Right. <laughs> yeah. Coming up, we'll continue our conversation with Detroit poet Jessica Caremore. You're listening to Detroit Today. I'm speaking with Jessica Caremore. She's a poet from Detroit. She's also the CEO of More Black Press, an executive producer of Black Women Rock and founder of the literacy-driven Jessica Caremore Foundation. She's the author of many books of poetry as well. Jessica, I want to talk to you about your personal history. You've talked a little bit about your parents here, and I'm happy to hear that you went to Cody High School because normally... You hear a lot of people um, yes. talking about Cass. Someone had to not go to Cass. Right, or Renaissance or King. Those sort of that trifecta of a rivalry school. So I'm really happy yeah. to hear a different high school in the Cody, mix. Cody, <laughs> Cody, Cody. I'm a Cody comment for life, too. And um, if anyone tries to put me in any other school, I'm like, I correct them very quickly. I'm very proud. I was living on the west side. grew up on the west side of Detroit. Could have gone to Cass. Absolutely. Um, came out of Catholic school, first to eighth grade, at St. Al's mm. and St. Suzanne's. And... 
decided against Bishop Borges, decided against CAS and um, and those schools because I wanted truly to walk to school. Hmm. It's this thing called walking to school. Right, that, absolutely. That was neighborhood school. To me, neighborhood school, and it was yeah. close by. And I, I played uh, four varsity sports in school, so I was always at school till about 6 o'clock at night. Hmm. Um, very busy um, student, even in high school. And so... That's that was where I needed to be. I mean, I was um, yeah. I lived on Jerry Road in Hayden, and like you mm. know, that's it's just I could walk home, and so that was in my head working. My mom at that time had when I got to high school, my mother had separated from my father, so my mother was just with me and uh, my sister at that time. So I needed to be able to like get home by myself. Right. <laughs> yeah. Four varsity sports. What did you play? I played basketball all my life, and I was a guard for Cody for four years. Wow. And I played baseball, second base, and I played volleyball, and I ran cross country. Wow. <laughs> so you were active and busy. I was an athlete. You know what's funny is like I went to predominantly white Catholic schools from first to eighth grade, and I was very quiet. And uh, that experience really uh, made me a very in- introverted kind of person. Mm-hmm. And so Cody, going to Cody was the best thing in the world. I was terrified my first week. I was scared. I had never been around that many black students before. Mm-hmm. I was different. You know, you talk like a white girl. I had very my English was pretty proper. I guess I never thought that was talking like a white girl. I I dressed weird. I, I was very preppy. I think to Cody. Um, but I found my voice at Cody, you know, Intazaki Shange's um, For Color Girls was a play that changed my life. Mm-hmm. And my drama teacher at the time, Cody had a drama, La Troupe des Arts was one of the baddest drama troops in the city, students. And uh, Susan Story, my drama teacher, just changed my life. And she brought For Color Girls into the Black Box Theater. And I was like, what is this language? What is this? Mm. And then I went to the library right there on Joy Road and I found Lucille Clifton and Audre Lorde. And all these amazing writers. And I'd already known Alice Walker from my mother and Lorraine Hansberry. I was a really, I was a speed reader. My mother read a lot of memoir mm. and nonfiction. So I grew up very early. I was reading like Janis Joplin's autobiography. Dense things. Yeah. Listen, long things. Yeah. Long things, story things, not fiction. Non, I love real stories about real people. And so my mother was like, a hippie, you know, <laughs> completely. And so she had all, like, she loved Janis Joplin and, and Jimi Hendrix. And so I knew about all of those Woodstock kind of people. And so, um, but she she gave me Lorraine Hansberry. Just left it on the desk one day, and I was like, who's this? To be young, gifted, and black. You know, put her play, you know, right on the table. And so Cody really shaped me. You know, Cody's not the same Cody anymore. I have been in the school, spoken at the school many times. Yeah. And um, they're split into three schools now. And so I've done some work at DIT. Um, I, you know, my, my students actually painted the mural that's in the front of the Renaissance Center when you walk in. And I've been in Detroit School of the Arts. I've been, I'm at Western International now, so doing dream directing, working with a nonprofit, going into the school um, just a couple of times, you know, throughout the week when I'm not on the road, mm. and and trying to um, show these Detroit students that they can dream big and that the world belongs to them. Right. And that I'm from, I went to Cody. No, I didn't go to Kaza Renaissance. I went to Cody High School, and I've been all over the world, you know, on poems, and right. that you can do that too. Well, it yeah. seems to me like you also sort of potentially have a story of being able to um, maybe not reinvent yourself, but yeah. become whoever you want to be. Yeah. There is sort of a separation and obviously a lot of crossover as well, but there's a separation between those who are jocks and those who are the art students. Yeah. And and it's not to say that you can't be both, but um, usually <laughs> in our minds, we separate them That's out, right? right. Um, but you were able to do both or discover both. Yeah. Um I was a nerd with handles, you know. Yeah. I was a nerd that could dribble a ball, you know. And I, but I was such a nerd. Like, I was helping the basketball players with their English papers. Like, right. I was, if I had not for sports and and then for drama, like the black, the theater, 
I would have theater would open me up in a different, you know, beauty, beautiful kind of way. I did To Kill a Mockingbird, and I was like three quarter rounds, and learning about theater yeah. got me more confident. But sports, um, I always talk about the importance of sports. And so my son now plays ice hockey and baseball, and he's been on a basketball team. He's played some soccer. Like I believe our kids should experience sports, even if they're not really good at it. You right. should attempt it, and um, it's balanced me. And it's got it's my competitive nature. So right. you know, like with uh, with my writing, like you know, I've I've always been very competitive with myself. But just you know, yeah, it's shaped my. It gave me that that different kind of huntsville. Like when I went to New York to Brooklyn, some of that I got that ball player kind of attitude. You know, it's Detroiter, mm. but it's also like. Yo, I, I could do a pickup game, and I ran. I had <laughs> brothers, so I've been. I played basketball with boys my whole life, and so right. Yeah, I never. I didn't play for college, but I was. You know, I wasn't good enough for college, and that's time we didn't have any opportunities with WNBA and stuff like that back then. Well, so, so. how do you think that the sports? Uh, helped shape you was it the discipline aspect of it was the, that you were competing with boys and so it gave you a, a strength or a, like a, a a sense of uh, equality if you will on mm. the on the court or what was it about sports that really sort of shaped who you are maybe even as an artist oh my god even now you know I, I get a rush you know I um I'm just I love being athletic. I'm a natural athlete, and so it was in my body, right? Uh, I just maybe didn't know it. And at the at the white Catholic schools, the way they played basketball, like I didn't get, I didn't make the team. I remember not making that team at Saint Alphonsus and just being like mortified. I was like, "What are you talking about?" Like. I can play basketball, but they played very robotic, right? Very Catholic school, very precision passes. And I played like street ball and mm-hmm. I could bring. So when I went to Cody and it went out for JV um, and I came down the court with my crossover, they were, I made varsity. Mm-hmm. And so I went from not being able to make the team to making varsity. So there was a confidence that was there. Mm-hmm. And I was, I was a good ball player, you know, I was a solid player and, um, I was a good volleyball player. I was pretty good at sports in a natural way, if I, and I enjoyed it. And I, to be honest, I loved baseball. My dad played baseball. My nephews played baseball. We're a baseball family, and so I played second base and shortstop. And I was probably a better baseball player than I was um, anything else, um, but I just loved the game of basketball. And so I play more baseball now, and I and I run now. So I, um, when I turned 40, <laughs> I started it's running. Hard to believe. Yeah, I ran 40. Oh my God. <laughs> um, I started becoming a runner because in Detroit there was like nobody to play with that right. were grown ups. I was like, nobody <laughs> wants to play baseball with me. So I'm going to just start running. And so I started doing like the turkey trot and I did like the 5K and then I did the 10K and then I did the free press half in 2011. And so running was something I could do and nobody else had to show up. But I don't know. It's. Um, I, I love to feel, I feel good when I run. I feel good hmm. when I'm playing. And I, and then team sports. So as as an artist, I think it paved, it made me the institution builder, right? Because like teams are so important. Right. And like being a poet, I became so famous so quickly, famous hmm. in quotes in my world, right? Um, five, six months into moving to Brooklyn, hmm. I did Showtime at the Apollo. And here I was 22 years old and like, that's Shirley McLean is like stopping me in Central Park, like, I know who you are. I'm like, you're Shirley McLean. Are you talking to me right now? <laughs> like, just the most craziest stuff in the world. And everyone knew me from like Harris One to Nas to the Jizza and all the Wu Tang Clan people, like, you know, Lauren Hill. Like, everybody was, they saw me on the Apollo. It was one o'clock in the morning and it was the time when everybody was doing it. And so, um, the Fuji's were actually there when I won. Brandy, wow. Brandy was there when I won. Um, Paul Mooney was there when I won. Like, they were actually were witness to it. It was just, surreal time and so but it wasn't enough for me just to become like a famous poet by myself and I was in Brooklyn and I was looking at all these New York poets and I was like yo we need 
uh, a publishing house. We need to publish our books, right? Mm-hmm. And Harlem River Press at the time was kind of folding. They had put out Tony Medina, Asha Bandeli, Suhir Hamad. These are all my friends and um, for a long time now. And and they were going away because small press is hard. And right. so I started More Black Press in my Brooklyn Brownstone with my other poetry friends. And we came up with a book cover. Didn't know what the heck we were doing, right? But I was I knew that was the Detroiter in me. That was the athlete in me. Like, let's build mm-hmm. something. Like, doing it by yourself kind of sucks. Um, and I wanted to be here for a long time. And I wanted to well, find... It's, yeah. it's also that idea of, like, hard work pays off, right? Listen, the, I'm tired <laughs> talking to you right now. <laughs> yeah. You know, all of this happening sort of in your 20s, when yes. when people are feeling very vivacious and excited. Yeah. Um, I'm assuming this is before you're a mom. Yeah, because King yeah, is... Yeah, King is 11, but no, I was not my first child. So I have Omari oh, okay. Jazz Ade is 22. He lives in Portland, Oregon. And I met his dad, Sharif, who was my first husband um, in 1995, and he was just a baby. And Sharif and I were just, like, best friends. So I was dating other people um, yeah. in the scene, as you do, dating poets and MCs or whatever. And, and, uh, <laughs> and Sharif and I fell in love, and I fell in love with Omari. And he wasn't my birth child, but I'd had him since he was a baby. Hmm. So I went from being the friend that babysat him and watched him to... A marrying dad, and he was a single father. Mm. You know, um, Omari's biological mother had some mental health issues, and so he, he had full custody of his son before we got married. And so I became a full time mommy. Was in this in Brooklyn? Th- this is in Brooklyn. So uh, how how did you find the uh, as a mm. as a young mother? Um, yeah. How did you? <laughs> I can't imagine yeah, yeah. as a mother now of a two and a half year old finding mm. the energy to start a publishing company as well. Yeah. How did you? How did you sort of maintain this relationship with both? The father and your son, and yeah. also, you know, being thrown into motherhood, but also trying to become a professional in this Taking artistic world. Well, I'd already done it. Like when Sharif and I met, I'd already done. I'd already done the Apollo. Okay. So we and we were comrades. We were on the poetry scene together. So mm-hmm. we met as poets, and um, I got married. And when was that? When was the first one? <laughs> mm-hmm. I think it was ninety nine. We'd been together for a few years before we got married. So I'd already my first book had come out already, okay. and so um, I was already performing. I was already right. traveling. So I was already a known poet. Um when we got married it was like a gig. Like everyone came to our wedding. <laughs> like we were like, we didn't invite all you people. They just showed up at the <laughs> it was outside at a park in the at the cloister. So it was just like a it was a poetry show. And so it was two poets that got married. And Omari was then four. Hmm. Just a baby. And then we were married for a short time in uh, in New York and then we left and moved to Atlanta. And we thought hmm. that was the best thing to kind of like start our life in Atlanta. And my marriage fell apart. Fast, um, fast. So I had Omari full-time mommying until he was almost nine, hmm. but I divorced his dad. And it was a legal fight. It's very hard, very, very difficult time for me. Uh, my friend said it was a, a coarse time in my life. Hmm. And um, I think I probably had, like, a nervous breakdown before I knew what a nervous breakdown was. But I was very young. I took Omari everywhere. He's been all over the country with me, just like King has been. I've done this already. Um motherhood was a very natural thing for me. I love kids. And um, when I, you know, I divorced Sharif, I, you know, and my ties with Omari, you know, were frayed for a while yeah. by force. It wasn't my choice. I fought for him legally in all kinds of ways, fought for visitation rights. Um, and some things happened in Sharif's life that made him have a turnaround and um, allowed me to have my relationship with my son that I deserved. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, um, and we're very close now. And God willing, I'll see him over the holiday. So did this sort of course time, if you will, in yeah. your life, um, did it also shape you as an artist at the time? Of course. I mean, yeah. if you read my, um, like my, 
God is Not an American is the book I wrote when I came back to Detroit. Hmm. It's my third book, and it's all about me. Um, it, it's about me leaving and coming back home. You know, it's like the journey hasn't been easy, and because I fall in love, you know, I'm a stupid poet that I'm hopeless romantic. It's funny because I was just with Nikki Giovanni last weekend in D.C., and she said, "I'm always in love." I was like, "Wait, Nikki, that's my line," you know. And she's <laughs> 74. I'm like, "I'm doomed," you know. Like I'm gonna be like this the rest of my life. And so I fell in love with Sharif and have no regrets. And we had, and um, we had the time that we had, and it was a hard. Yeah, and I came home for that first holiday without Omari, and I don't think I could walk up my mother's stairs. I was completely mm. just done. And what was most difficult, and it's a memoir I've been writing for 10 years. My agent's been waiting for me to, like, stop being a scaredy cat and get it done. So it's coming. Um, but it's no one understood. Uh, and people would say really, uh, really horrible things to me, very insensitive things, just out of a lack of understanding for loving a child that you didn't birth in the way that I loved on my Omari, like, didn't care right. if I pushed him out of me. It's all the vanity of childbirth. Give me a break. Like, it doesn't matter if he has my... And he looks like me enough to where nobody would know unless they knew. Oh, it's funny. So that didn't matter. Um, yeah. And so it was it just difficult because people were just like, well, you know, you could just have your own kids. You know what I mean? Like, wow, really? Like, that's been my son. Like, he's like nine. Are you out of your mind? Right. Like, that's like almost a decade. And it's difficult. You don't just go... You know, you just don't stop loving your children. And um, however you get them... Coming up, we'll continue our conversation with Detroit poet Jessica Caremore. You're listening to Detroit Today. I'm Laura Weber Davis. I'm speaking with Detroit poet Jessica Caremore. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about your relationship with King and how that's evolved not only as a mother son, but also now as sort of compatriots. <laughs> you know, he's received this Knight Arts grant as well. Before and me. <laughs> did, he, did he not open for Dave Chappelle or something he this year? He opened for Dave Chappelle. Yeah. <laughs> it's a dear friend of mine. I've known Dave for many years. And he's like, yo, Jessica, he knows he knew what, what King was up to. And he's like, you want King to open? I was like, yeah, I can open. And I don't think we, neither one of us realized what that was. And, but he did it and he was so good and it was so interesting because Stan Lake with poetry not with comedy oh with poetry yeah. oh yeah he is not yeah he couldn't even listen to Dave's show I was like headphones iPad backstage <laughs> yeah you cannot listen to Uncle Dave no 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 um, but he, know, he knows who Dave is and so um, he knows he's very grown up but Stan Lathan was there who I worked with who directed Deaf Poetry Jam who hmm. I didn't know was going to be there and I was like Stan what's up and so he watched King and it was just so beautiful for me to watch Stan Lathan watching my son yeah. and saying wow he's a natural and I was like, yeah, he's good, man. Yeah, right? Yeah. And he's like, I want to work with him. I was like, we can come to L.A., you know. Um, but King is King is amazing. And what I realized he was, could write when he was around seven. Hmm. And um, he was always very smart. And I knew he'd probably be artistic in some way. He could draw really well. He could just kind of do all the things. But I started reading his journal entries. And that time, he wasn't in touch with his father. And he was reading kind of things. That he wrote, my mother is the, my best opportunity becoming a great man. Like, yeah. Just really profound things. I'm like, you're seven years. Like, what is the stuff that you're writing? And I said, you know, King, you should keep on writing. You should write about all the things you're thinking about. And then he just kept writing and writing. I was reading, and I was like, yo, this is good stuff. Um, you know, you want to read this out loud? You want to share it? And he was like, yeah, mommy, I'll do it. And then uh, Fluent, who's a dear friend of mine, um, does the events at Jazz Cafe and, and the Cafe Mahogany back in the day. Um, Fluent um, was doing a show called um, 
oh god what is it called something a man and oh and oh no i think it's called king it was a king show hmm. um and he did these man can change shows and he's like well every king can open and i was like that would be awesome i said like, you know we should just make a chapbook out of it let's go and so that was his first like reading with the book and he did a book signing all my friends came out and i remember coming home and he said mommy it was a good event but there were no there are no kids there it's just uh -huh. grown-ups I was like, well, it's 10 o'clock on a school night. You know, like, that's not normal for most grownups. I was like, I, we have a weird life. And and he said, um, yeah, I want to do it. But I can't, next time I do it, I want to have some kids. And I said, well, King, if you want that, then you have to invite your friends. And you have to create that. Right. And he was like, okay. And I was like, well, let's do it. And let's call it something. And he was like, so, you know, I said, well, who can come? You know, he said, well, no teenagers. Like, that was his thing. He's hmm. like, no teenagers. Just like kids my they're, age. they're thinking about different things. Teenagers are starting to think in really adult ways. I mean, their work is you know, adult-ish. Yeah. And uh, he's done readings with some teenagers, and he'll look at me like, Mommy, see? You know, like, because mm -hmm. they'll invite him to come to something that's got, like, 15 and 16-year-olds on it. And it's really above his what he needs to be around. Right. And, um, and people make assumptions just because he's been around me. I mean, he's been around my filthy mouth. You know, like, that's <laughs> me. But it was different when it's coming from, like, teenage kids. Sure. Who are, like, you know, they're still kids, and the, but they're still dealing with, like, They're very, adult, but they're not mature. Yeah, and it's yeah. And he doesn't like it. And so he's like, well, 12 and under only. And I'm like, good. So we got to make it cool. So that's where, like, the 12 and under super cool poetry open mic came from. And so he started doing it, and he did it, and it was really successful. And then Knight Foundation came up, and I had been turned down, like, a couple times. And, <laughs> and I was like, King, you want to apply for Knight? I swear, it was, like, maybe 10.30 p.m. The midnight deadline was there. And I was like, let's do it. We did it for fun. So yeah. we wrote the paragraph five. Out and da, 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 and he's sitting there with me and I was like, oh, you just submitted the idea. Like, yeah, you never know. We might get it. We could not believe. When he got the call, he was like, this is the best day of my life. Mommy. Bet he was so excited. He was, he was nine yeah. years old. Like he, when he got when we got the call, he was nine. And then when he actually received it, he had turned 10. Wow. I mean, just a baby. But he's a really good writer and his writing's really different from mine. So people ask me, did you write it? I'm like, I don't write his poems. Those are his poems. And well, tell me a little bit about about yeah. the difference that the the clear difference between his style of poetry and yours. He's very he's more quiet than me, you know. Well, he's just a, he's just a kid, so I think he's the confidence level. Um, really introspective. Um, he's very much a humanitarian. Um, when I my, when I was younger, my poems were all about like tear down the system, and he's very peaceful. Hmm. Um, he's very he thinks about um, death and dying and things like that, like he, um, in a way that's very gentle. He's more, he's a more, he's a Virgo. He's a more gentle soul. <laughs> I'm a Scorpio, so he's gentle. Um, well, do you think that he? Uh, do you think that he is not at risk, yeah. if you will? But yeah. do you think that he would it would be vulnerable to picking up your sentence structure or your flow or your style? Maybe not the subject matter, but yeah. do you think that as he grows? that he is finding his voice already at such a young age that is yeah. different than yours it's and your already, de his delivery? It's, yeah, it's already really different from hmm. mine. But it's going to change because his voice is going to change. Right. So once, <laughs> And I think though he'll end up, I mean, he's really good at, I think he'll end up being a songwriter, I think, more than hmm. anything. And he plays, uh, he, lo he loves piano. Um, and so I think that's, I think it's going to develop into music because he has like, such a great musical ear. Um and so piano, plays piano, violin, and some drums. He got an electric guitar. So I think it had turned into songs. Hmm. Um, he told me, Mommy, I'm going to write poetry for the rest of my life, but I don't think I'm going to be like, a poet for a living. Like, I don't think that's going to be the only thing on my bio. And hmm. I was like, please don't right. <laughs> be a poet for a living because that's a hard thing to be. Um, but I think he'll, like, I could see him. Like, he's not afraid to sing. We'll see what happens with his voice. But he's interested in acting and music and 
I think it had developed into something else. Now he's like going crazy or Photoshop, and once he can, he can make a flyer. Like mm-hmm. he's really way smarter than me and way more advanced than I ever was at 11 years old. Um, but these kids just are. I mean, he's technology technologically right. just gone. Right. And um, and so I'm really trying to keep up with him, but I'm interested. Um, but his work is like you know the piece he wrote like like Ali. You know, I, I mean, he had to do a piece um for Muhammad Ali. That was the theme, and it all became about bullying. It's an anti-bullying piece, you know. Hmm. And he started with like, "Boys will be bo- boys will have fights." Was hmm. the first line. I was like, "It's a great line." Mm-hmm. And so he's got, he's got it honest. Like he's got the gift of writing honest. He's uh, one of the strongest writers, I'm sure, in his class. And he just had his event at the Michigan Science Center that was amazing. And two of his teachers, his English teacher and science teacher, both showed up. I'm really interested in science too, you mm-hmm. know. And so I'm, I'm just like, whatever, babe. Like, you know, <laughs> as a mom, I'm just like, if he div- uh, gets something. I mean, he's been not just around me. He's been around the last poets. He's been around Sonia Sanchez. He's been around Nikki right. Giovanni. He's been around right. all kinds of poets. So he hears how poets are different. But he's been on stages his whole life. Like yeah, I had him on stage in the in the womb, <laughs> and right. he's on. He's been on stage with like my stroller. So he's not afraid. No, he's very nervous. Oh, he is. Before he goes on, absolutely. <laughs> but he doesn't show it on doesn't stage, show that's it on clear. on stage, it clicks. I remember yeah. he did, um, Alicia Hall Moran is a famous uh, opera singer, um, and out of, um, and Jason Moran, who, the pianist, is her husband. Hmm. They live in New York, and she's a friend of mine. She casted him in this piece because she saw that he played hockey, and she knew he was a poet. So he actually did a piece in Brooklyn at Sawdust Theater um, last, last summer, and had a speaking role. It was interacting with opera singers, and he destroyed the piece hmm. and was so good. But right before he went on, he was getting, he was sweating. Hmm. He had, had some Thai food, and he was like, Mommy, I feel sick. Oh, his stomach. Stomach, his yeah. nerves, whatever it was, a mix of things. And I looked at him, and I said, King Alicia doesn't have anybody else back up to play your just, part. Just going to have to do it. So what are you going to do? He's like, I said, just got to do it. And do you know my baby? Went on stage. If he tells you the story, he swallowed. He felt throw up coming. And said he swallowed it. Oh, no. And did his lines and got off stage. And he went to the hallway and he threw up in the th- hallway of the theater. My oh, baby. And at that moment, I was just like, oh, no. So but they had him, the guys who were running the, the theater box office, they had him sitting on the counter with a ginger ale. And oh. He was fine. And so, no, he gets... um. He gets nervous. And, I, you know, I told him at Black and Rock, I had him read a poem, and Divinity Rocks was backstage. I said, guess what? I said, Divinity Rocks is nervous. Can you believe it? He was like, no, she's not. I was like, she just told me. I swear to <laughs> God, she's nervous. She plays with Beyonce, but she's nervous at Charles H. Right. And she was like, I don't even know why. I'm just like, I know they love me. I said, they love you. He said, I think that's why I'm nervous, you know. And so I was like, nerves are good. I said, so you just use it. But it's never stopped him from going. Right. And so, yeah. He pushes a, through it. It's got a natural get on stage. I could never do that at 11. I was so shy. Mm-mm. Forget about it, you you know, right. so it's a gift. Yeah. Well, we're, Blessing. Uh, <laughs> we talked for so long. <laughs> I, well, I, you know, I find it really interesting because I know at that age, like I loved being in theater, but every time the performance came up, I can't like I when I see your son perform, I don't think of him as looking nervous in any way. Yeah. But when I'm up on stage when I'm that age, like it's all I can think is that the world can tell what I'm feeling on the inside, you yes, know, and yes. that and that I'm feeling so vulnerable in that moment. But once you get on stage, you're doing it, right? You you're just fine. have to do it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's right funny because we were just looking at a video of him at a Noel night where I had him open for me because he was play, he used to do the, he'd be doing Langston Hughes poems and playing drums. This is before he was writing. Yeah. He was still performing. So he playing the percussion and then doing Langston Hughes poems. And he was, I was so cute. He's leaning on the thing. And I was watching him. We were watching him, his younger self, the other day. And I was like, he was so confident. 
confident. He's like, how you all doing? You feeling okay? And I was like, King, look at this energy. He's like, you know why? I said, why? He said, because I didn't realize what I was doing. Hmm. I didn't realize all those people were out there. I was so young. He's 11, talking right. like he's an old man, but he's a very old spirit. And he's like, <laughs> you know, when I, I didn't realize... Like, you know, basically he didn't say the enormity, but the enormity of what I was doing. So I could just kind of just be, I was pretty like, you know, hey, how y'all doing? Right. Would you like to hear a poem? I'm going to do some drums and play. I'm going to do Langston Hughes. And I'm, you know, I'm six years old, or five <laughs> years old. And I'm going to play drums and do Langston Hughes and whatever. But now you get more self-aware. Right. He's a preteen. Right. You know, he's aware of everything. He's getting taller. It's awkward. Girls want to hold his hand. He's like, well, I mean, what's <laughs> going on? And, and we're dealing with all of that. But I, I have a really blessed existence i appreciate you bringing me on it that 2017 um has been a really incredible year for me yeah, yeah it really has and 2018 i'm already booked for the entire year you know that's wonderful I, it's gone i i'm really excited because black on rock is coming march 17th to the charles h Wright, and um the lineup i mean i can't even give it away yet because i have to wait till <laughs> next year because it's so good and but we're at the yerba buena performing arts center in san francisco in may and it's my first time bringing Black on Rock to the Bay Area. And That's I know wonderful. those women are going to go bananas when we get there. And I'm rolling out a Black on Rock curriculum um, at Skyline College in San Francisco. No kidding. Yes. So the sky, the, the residency, I'll, I'll be traveling to San Francisco and Detroit the rest of the year, 2018, wow. until June. I'm working with the women's, women's studies, so it's all women, which is amazing. And I've created this curriculum of just about self-empowerment and studying just independent artists and people getting to know Imani Azuri and Betty Davis, who I do this show for. And, mm. But also delving into, like, you know, womanist theory and um, self-care. And we're doing all the things in poetry and Soldier Sanchez is writing. And I get to just do whatever I want, which mm -hmm. is amazing. And um, Skyline has been supporting me over the last few years, bringing me to campus. They're like, I was like, do you guys just want me to stay? They're like, yeah, can we make that happen? Mm. So the curriculum will begin in February and run until the culminating concert in May. That's incredible. Um, I hope so you'll come excited. back. <laughs> I, I'm going to. Yeah, I love the Bay, but it's not where I yeah. necessarily want to live. And yeah. um, I, I'm more of a Midwest. I'm definitely an East Coast girl. My son wants to live. Oh, interesting. You can think of yourself as an East Coast person. I'm so East Coast. I'm so East Coast. <laughs> I'm, I'm a Midwest girl, and I'm country because my daddy's from Alabama. And my family, the other part of my family's in, in Canada. And so... Um, but do you feel like your energy is more is more aligned with an East Coast energy? I'm a New Yorker. Yeah. <laughs> I like to walk and, you know... Big city, a lot of things going on. And people yeah. can't stand... Either you can't stand that or you absolutely can't do without it. And yeah. Well, so tell me a little bit about your return to Detroit. 10 years ago yeah. um, especially because you grew up here and you saw it uh, you know in the mm. 80s and the 90s or a little bit in the 90s um, yeah. tell me about how, what you think of Detroit over the past 10 years especially because we're sort of talking about this so-called renaissance or this yeah. new renaissance period yeah. and, and I think that comes with a lot of bittersweet feelings of course. so I'm just curious about what you think about what you've seen from living downtown mm. 10 years ago yeah. and knowing what it was like in the 80s um, yeah, and how how you feel about the way that people talk about Detroit or the way Detroit looks today? Oh, it's such a heavy, heavy question. I mean, it's it's um, it's dual fold. Um, I live. I, I'm vegetarian. I like. I ride a bike. I like Wi-Fi. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, all those amenities that come with like um, gentrification. I hate the word re. Like anything that's like re. When people start saying like re or like Renaissance or reinvention <laughs> or re. I mean, like no, the yeah, like re yeah. re gentrification, like. I'm like, okay, because I grew up here, right? And it was a couple million people in the city, and it was an amazing place to grow up. And so many kids on the block, like, just loaded with kids on Ward and Tyerman. And so 
it's a heartbreak. Like I used to go, I went to Tiger Stadium with my daddy my whole life. That's why we love baseball. And so I, I was one of those people that was parked while they were tearing it down and crying, like on Trumbull. And so it's hard for me to watch the newness become a replacement for what was here. Hmm. I don't have a problem with uh, cafes. And we need more restaurants. You know, I like places to shop. Those things are cool. Um, but I do have a problem with a bulldozing over. I have issues with renaming of streets and neighborhoods. Like mm-hmm. it wasn't good. It, it was good enough to get me who to get me where I am. You know, why is it not good enough for you? My father's Detroit. I mean, I'm a Comanche young baby all day, and mm-hmm. and that that fiery mayor that we had. Um, you know, we we come from. It's funny because you go. I moved to Harlem. and I was like, you know, I came from such a place that was so strong and black, like unapologetically black, like not like black on purpose. Not even even mm. the white people were black. It wasn't like, you know, like and even for me, like you know, for me, like Detroit, that sign, like you know, I love the sister that has the shop. Detroit is a new black, but for me, like Detroit is the old black. Like hmm. the old black built the city. Um, my daddy built the city. Like our my grandfather, you know, our grandfathers and our fathers and our mothers who worked those assembly lines and built this car and built this industry. Like that's what Detroit is. And so if you build over over bulldoze over and like build on top of all our history, then what are we gonna have left? Do we just want to look like every other city? The reason why Detroit is fresh to death is because we don't look like Brooklyn. Right. You know, when they're talking about Corktown being Williamsburg, I was like, yeah, right. Not even <laughs> close, babe. Like, Williamsburg doesn't even look like Williamsburg anymore. You know, like, right. it's a whole different place, too. And New York has been gentrified. Brooklyn has. Harlem has. But that's what I'm saying. Like, the, the essence of who we are is, like, is that we're not everybody else. And so as we develop, right, you know, um, it, you know, it, it's just been hard. I grew up on the West Side. The West Side used to be beautiful. Well, yeah, you know? you have seen this actually. That's interesting because you have mm-hmm. seen this from the Brooklyn perspective as well. And yeah. we we talk about Detroit as being the new Brooklyn in some <laughs> ways, right? There's a lot of young white people moving into the city. There's yeah. a lot of money moving into the yeah. city, and that does bring cafes and nice things with it. Right. Um, but it also fundamentally changes yeah. what a city looks like. How do you reconcile some of that, both as uh, a resident and a mm. mother who wants nice things and maybe your son to yeah. be able to walk to his high school down the street. Of course. But then on the other there hand... Is, there isn't one, by the right, way. Right, right. And so and the, when the white people who are moving here get pregnant, you know... They're like, leaving. Yeah, they leave. And, yeah. that, and, and it has to get to the point where we actually um, make our school system better so that we have schools and neighborhood schools that our children can go to for free, right? We should have free, free good education, safe education. And... We have lost sight of that. You know, we started closing all the schools. You know, I'm like, right. wow, these schools are closing. Where are the kids going to go? And losing population. And so it's still almost 90% black city. You know, so I live in that bubble that is downtown. But even if white kids are moving here, there's still, the majority of the city is still black. And yeah. Well, it's interesting. My Specifically as an artist, my, my dad used to always talk about um cities becoming revitalized from artists first yeah. because artists often move to the places where there's affordable space to yes, work. Absolutely. Um, and so, and then they create the culture and then people move in and they want to be part of that yes. culture and they bring the money with them and that you have to have a strong arts community before you can have a strong anything else, Let's go. which yeah. I think is a, a really wonderful way of looking at it. But then often artists get priced out of places. Well, that's or, what's happening. Right. I mean, um, I'm getting priced out of Corktown as we speak. Mm. Um, I don't own the place that I'm in and they want more, a lot of money to, they want me to buy it for uh, double what they paid for it. And so I'm just not doing it. And so that's that's the issue, right? It's like, 
I called about a place because I was looking um, downtown somewhere off Broadway. And I was like, how much? And it was like a penthouse. And I was like, okay, it looks decent. It looks really great. And they were like, I think the rent was like close to $3,000 a month. Wow. And I was like, um, how much? Right. And you know what the guy on the phone said? It was so funny. He said, well, you know, this is the comeback city. And I said, well, who do you want to come back? Right. Nobody right. in Detroit can afford that on on middle class, working class wages, right? And so don't have a kid or two in the house. Who can afford that? Mm -hmm. So you want New Yorkers to live here. Mm -hmm. You want the people from L.A. to come to go, oh, because two or $3,000 a month is normal, like, in New York City. So we're used to paying. I'm used to paying high rent. So after living in New York, when I came back to Detroit, I could afford to live downtown because it was kind of what I was used to paying, 1000 and up. Most people in Detroit were not paying that. People are paying five, six. Seven hundred dollars a month yeah, sure. for houses, right. for houses with backyards and square footage. So, it was a whole different way of even of thinking. And when I moved back, there wasn't anything happening downtown. I lived at Lofts and Merchant Road. It was boring. Right, nothing was down there. Um, so it's it's hard because I understand the need for. I just want to see Wi-Fi on Joy Road. That's what I always <laughs> say. Like if we can't have just like cater to. Mid, what they call in Midtown, which is the Cass Corridor. We can't just cater to, like, downtown. And that that's cool, okay? We have to have a nice downtown. We need more things happening downtown. But we, we have to take care of the west side and east side. Most of the people live in the neighborhoods. So you're going to create so many problems, like, crime-wise. And, you know, I always say that, like, you know, segregation is not new. It's not sexy. When I go into, like, Jolly Pumpkin, Brooklyn Local, like, these are, you know, got slows. I know Phil. Like, I go into these places, and sometimes I'm the only... Person of black color. person mm -hmm. in there. And I'm the only black person. Person of color, maybe. Maybe mm -hmm. there's a couple of people of color, but ain't no black people. And I'm like, <laughs> so I'm like, where are the people? I wrote a poem about the Cats Corridor called Where Are the People? Because I actually left uh, a pizza place and they had given us pepperoni by accident. And me and my son drove up Cass like for a long time trying to find someone to give a free pizza to. Hmm. We couldn't find anyone. And so I wrote this piece called Where Are the People? And so it's a heartbreak, you know, because you can't just, you just can't sweep people away. You can't, I was like, where have the people gone? You know, like this, a new arena is there. Where, where are the people? And that used to really be here. Where are the people in Petersburg? Like, where are the people that I used to like give food to, or, you know, like right. to give blankets to, like, where are they? <laughs> and um, so you just can't forget about the community. Um, you can't forget about the people. I think Detroit will be great if we are an inclusive Detroit. Well, do you have yeah. any, do you have a, a good, from your perspective, a good concept of, of where that conversation really begins. Because I feel like even though there is the emotional pull to want to make sure that people are not priced out, that they are not left out. Yeah. Um, artist housing. We need it. Mayor Duggan, right. like, we need artist housing. Right. Raz Baraka in Newark, New Jersey is doing artist housing. Mm -hmm. I'll end up going to Newark. You know, and I've had these conversations with um, with Mayor Duggan one on one within like community housing places where they invite me to come and be a voice there, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm like, you have to, you want people like me. I mean, that's why I like move here, move Detroit, right? Of course, it's great because I wrote it, right? And like, and that went viral all over the world, really. And and it's only because you have artists that love the city, like, and you should love on us back, right? Mm -hmm. And create space. Make sure that I have a loft. Make sure I have a space. That, that I can afford so I can afford to live in Detroit. And you, it, it does become a price out thing. And it makes me go, well, in New York, if I'm going to spend $1,500 to $2,000 to live in a cool area in Detroit, then I might as well just go back to Brooklyn because I can get more city, more stages, right. more opportunity, uh, less space, but a lot more opportunity. And so that becomes the thing where like people who are running the city, people who are thinking about like what this city should be, 
you got to get out of get your head out of Midtown. You got to get your head out of just this couple parameters of these miles. You got to get to the far west side. You got to get to the far east side. You've got to tap into the artists that live. Artists live in those communities too. Everybody don't live downtown. Some people have more sense than me. <laughs> Actually, like live in other neighborhoods. And I'm buying a home in the Fitzgerald neighborhood. And so, you know, I'm going to buy a house on the west side. And so I'm going to invest in. And having something here in the city, even if I don't stay here forever, and I don't think I will, only because there's just other opportunities for my son that might be in other places too. Right. And so, I'm um, we're thinking of like, what's the future for King? And education is a big thing for. I'm he's in a private Catholic school, and so, and you know, there's no perfect place. You know, we've tried all the things, and none of them are the place where we are 100% happy. Right. We're like okay where we are, and so. But um, but we're always looking for the so education is a big deal, and when these you know, these kids who are coming here, y'all happy about get pregnant, they're gonna want some good schools. So we got to think about great schools. We have to like fix our neighborhoods. All our neighborhoods need to be safe, not just the cultural center. All of them. We want right. the, the west side and east side to be safe. My family lives on the west side, and so, and that's where I grew up. And so it's you know Joy Road, you know Telegraph, like all those places, uh, West Chicago. I mean, I grew up on on the far west side, and those are beautiful neighborhoods. And some of them really still are. And I love the um, development on Livernois. Like, mm-hmm. shout out to Baker. Shout out to um, the, my girl's cupcake spot, you know, mm-hmm. uh, Good Cakes and Bakes. And, um, and Cuzzles is over there. I don't even care. I'm vegetarian. I don't even eat the stuff, right? But I still happy <laughs> right. to see business, right? Absolutely. Um, business booming and business is growing. And we need more boutiques. I need more dresses, you know. Um <laughs> I support my sister Rachel over there, the Peacock Room, and and this is there's there's people trying to stay alive in this city, but we have to support entrepreneurship. We have to be um, really not pretend we can't tiptoe around the race issue because mm-hmm. there is a race issue, and it's like and I, I you know that whole hipster thing. It's just not interesting to me. It's funny because one of my really good friends, uh, my white neighbor. Uh, uh, Kyle recently moved away, and I remember him saying to me once, you know, uh, Jessica, you know, I moved to Corktown, and all I see are white people in Detroit. And I, <laughs> I didn't come here for this. You know, now he lives on the west side, like he moved, you know. And so people want, like, Detroit's supposed to be an authentic place. So in order to stay, in order to stay authentic, you can't self-segregate. So, I, you know, even, like, some of my black friends, I'm like, listen, we went and integrated, like, Aster, coffee. Like, we did it on purpose. I had, like, a Black and Rock production meeting. I was like, all oh, 15 of us are about to go up in this coffee house. Like, to be present. Right. And I go in, and if I don't get good energy, I tell everybody not to go, and I don't come back. Right. So I'm like a regular at Brooklyn Lo- Local because I love that Canadian girl, and she's got good <laughs> coffee, and she's got good energy, and she, and to me, that's what it is. It's not about, oh, this white person just opened a business. No, it's all about, like, what's the good energy of this space? And what am are you I, trying and, to do in the city? Am I welcome here? Right. Am I welcome? Just simply as a person, am I welcome, or am I... I don't want to feel isolated in my own city. And there's times where I have felt that, and it's just strange, you know. But, you know, in, you know, Detroit Vegan Soul, you know, opened a spot on Grand River. Like, I love them that they moved. They had an east side place, and now they have a west side place. Like, we need, you know, to support, and any ideas supported them, right? So mm-hmm. having that grant money, those grant places like Kresge and Knight, like, we need you to be here so that we're supporting business. Like, I was blown away by any ideas, you know, because they were really about, in my poem I wrote was really about the been here people, the people that been here. Mm-hmm. That's what made this city great. It's not because you came from somewhere else. Now Detroit is fresh. No, Detroit has been amazing. And we've been through recessions. We made it through Reagan, you know, and crack cocaine invading our city and guns and drugs and people, like, getting addicted to drugs that we'd never heard of before. And suddenly, like, craziness, right? And we got through YBIs and this gang culture. And, like, there's all kinds of things that we survived to and to get here. And we survived and we have children now. And now we're like... 
everything is about what's new. I'm like, well, wait, but we built the city. And so it's about honoring the, um, you know, going forward, but honoring the past and what, why you do it. And I think that's how you do it with grace. And if you do it with grace, then everybody shows up, you know. Jessica, care more. I can't thank you enough. <laughs> Thank this you. is a wonderful conversation. And you're having really a good shirt. It. Yes. <laughs> Brody Hall is an Armstrong Hall. Brody Go Complex. Green. Yes. Michigan <laughs> State in the house. This is WDET, Detroit's public radio station, a community service of Wayne State University.